In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. David Perdue goes after Governor Kemp's economic development baby. Would I kill this deal? Yeah. I would not let this deal go if I had a way. Welcome to the Friday Weekly Roundup edition of the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein with my co-host Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. Welcome, Patricia. We have had quite the week. Where have you been? I have been um, down to the Georgia State Capitol. I have been uh, deep in the weeds on an investigation I'm doing into watching One American Network a whole bunch. (laughs) That's for an an upcoming column. It's to a strange, strange land far away. Um, I haven't done a lot of traveling, but I have been doing a lot of um, capital-focused work because they are really getting in to sort of like the hottest part of the um, legislative session right now. Well, I'm glad you weren't watching Russia today because apparently that network has now defunct as of a few minutes ago. Um, I've been with David Perdue out in Rutledge and, and a bunch of anti-Rivian activists afterwards at the Rutledge Wings, a great place. Delicious lemon pepper wings, by the way. Um, a, a shout out to Mark Aram's radio program because he he called for people to, uh, to give me a good place to eat. And uh, Rutledge Wings was the first thing that came up. And also at the Capitol with you. So we've been yes. we've been busy this week. Yes, we have lots, a lots, lots, and lots going on at the Capitol. Just committee hearings, bills. Just you can just feel the intensity constricting around that building. So it's um, you don't have to go far to find a lot going on at the state capitol. Thinking of like a boa constrictor now circling the gold dome. <laughs> That's what it feels like. A quick reminder, if you're listening to us for the first time, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show so we can grow our audience and make producer Jay Black even happier than he is every day. Woohoo. <laughs> Coming up today, <laughs> we're going to dip into the State of the Union and Herschel Walker distancing himself from Marjorie Taylor Greene. But first, Governor Kemp has touted bringing the Rivian electric vehicle plant to East Georgia as the largest economic development deal in state history. But his Republican rival, David Perdue, wants to fight him on that. I have two problems with this. One is that we don't know what it costs yet, so it's hard to evaluate that return. The second is it's obvious that the local community was not totally brought in to, uh, to sell and buy in on the project. That's former Senator David Perdue, Kemp's top Republican rival, this week, and he is not impressed at all. It's, it's all a question of return on investment. What a state incentive is, whether it's a tax credit or whatever, it's what are you going to get back for it. And you have to look at it over a long period of time. When you're talking about several hundred million dollars like this, even for $7,800, I have to question the economic return of that over a long period of time. 
So why would he kill this deal? Here's what Purdue said. Would I kill this deal? Yeah. I would not let this deal go if I had a way. I mean, right now, this hasn't passed. The, uh, the budget hasn't passed. So this money is still up in the air in the state legislature. Uh, I would have fought this until we had local buy-in and local uh, of the local people here. Not just the, the people who are politically connected, but everybody who bears interest in this deal. Patricia, this was a stunning moment on the campaign trail, not just because David Perdue is objecting to a $5 billion Rivian plant that would employ more than 7,500 people and really help cement the state's reputation as an electric vehicle hub, but also knowing who David Perdue is. He's a former Fortune 500 CEO who is well-versed in the ways of trying to get economic development incentives, how companies grow and expand, and the, really the, the nationwide competition using these perks and incentives uh, to lure companies to, to add jobs to areas in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, David Perdue, from his background as a CEO, um, knows all about seeding the territory with incentives. He knows all about also about that return on investment that he was talking about. Typically, Georgia has been very, very happy with the return on investment that they've gotten from these economic deals. We haven't seen a lot of gigantic duds when it comes to investments in manufacturing uh, all over the Southeast. It's really just a constant competition to see who can land those car deals because it does have such a huge return on investment for states. So if I had to write down a list of 122 candidates who would oppose this deal, um, David Perdue would not have been on my list or my bingo card. Um, but here we are. Um, he's doing a lot of things that I didn't expect him to do this year. One piece that I do agree with that he is talking about, there is some local opposition to this deal. Um, it's not hard to see why there is local opposition. A lot of people live in that space east of Atlanta because it's rural. They have left Atlanta. They have left Covington. They've moved east to get away from urban sprawl and development. And this is making it really look like that way of life could change once you put $5 billion into one very small area. So that is going to change things quite a bit. I'm sure there is local opposition, but there is also local support for it. I mean, it's sort of, uh, uh, we have not done a deep dive into it, but I think to hear David Perdue oppose this kind of a deal is a little shocking. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been writing about Rivian. I think we first broke the story that Rivian was likely to come to Georgia or looking to come to Georgia last summer, maybe. But I've been writing about this deal for close to nine months. And my colleagues, Scott Truby, Andy Peters, other AJC reporters have been out there writing about the local opposition, but I had not yet been out there to cover this on the ground. And it is there is a, a groundswell of opposition. It's not just from arch conservative Republicans. There were even people with Stacey Abrams shirts on, not ironically, real Stacey Abrams supporters at that David Perdue rally um, because they were against uh, this development, and they were they wanted to support David Perdue for speaking out against it. Hundreds of people were there. Um, there are anti-Rivian signs up everywhere in the community. Um, e even supporters acknowledge that they haven't done enough to try to build connections and ties with the community. So this is this is a real backlash. Does it mean that Rivian won't happen? No. Pro you know, all signs point to this deal moving ahead. The state has recently took over. Uh, taken over the the process of zoning and rezoning the land. So that is another sort of sign that this is on a fast track to moving forward. It would be a huge embarrassment for, for the governor and for Rivian if they were to pull out after the enormous announcement that they had in December in the victory lap. But let's be clear too, it's very rare to see Republicans, mainstream Republicans, speak out against 
giant economic development deals. For the last, what, decade, Georgia has prided itself on this claim that we're the number one state in the nation um, to do business. Nathan Deal took up that mantra. Governor Kemp has echoed it. Uh, we rarely have ever seen Republicans or Democrats talk negatively against these giant deals, and particularly so when it comes to auto deals. I mean, for decades, Georgia has sought after Asian or European car manufacturers and had so many close calls. The one huge success before Rivium was Kia Motor Plants, which came in 2006 under David Perdue's cousin, Sonny Perdue, uh, to build a plant, announced that it would build a plant in West Point that has helped transform that region and brought thousands of jobs um, to, to a struggling West Georgia area. So this was a seen as a major coup, and even Stacey Abrams applauded the deal. So you didn't see much political pushback, but now you are. Well, even for anybody in the Republican Party, and I'm going to include the Trump wing in this statement to see even Trump voters think about opposing this. And I say Trump voters because uh, Mike Collins, uh, the uh, Republican running for Congress in the 10th district, has also come out um, with concerns about this. I think there's been a kind of a breadth of the types of people who have decided to get in on the opposition to this. Donald Trump's one of his main economic platforms was to return American manufacturing, to bring plants, to bring manufacturing back to the United States, away from Russia, stop exporting, stop outsourcing, um, start making goods here in America. Um, if you're going to make them in America, you got to make them somewhere in America. You're going to have to build some factories to build the cars that you want to make in America. And so in order to hit the gas on American manufacturing, you have to actually start to manufacture American goods. And this is a classic example of a massive manufacturing project in Georgia um, that could be in Georgia that is kicking up some opposition um, above and beyond the local opposition, which also has a lot to do, I think, with water quality. A lot of those homes have well water. They're concerned that a big industrial project um, would uh, damage their water supply. There's, I mean, i I I think they might have a point. I'm, I'm no scientist, but I understand where they're coming from on that. Um, uh, but in terms of the economic development of that area, it's just impossible to deny the incredible benefits to that part of Georgia were this to happen um, economically. It's a balance, and that's what this controversy is about, although it kind of feels like David Perdue has gotten in on it because Brian Kemp is for it. So if Brian Kemp's for it, he's going to be against it. Um, it's a little bit like that Buckhead City issue. If Brian Kemp is before is for it or neutral, David Perdue's going to be against it. It kind of has that sort of feel to it, but I'll be interested to see if Purdue continues to push this. Yeah. On that point, I mean, I was kind of asking around if this was going to be a one-off or if this is going to be a part of his campaign platform. And let me put it this way. Um, Buckhead City has not been a one-off. Even at that rally in Rutledge, what, 150 miles from, from Buckhead City, David Purdue brought up Buckhead City as a, you know, we need to vote. We need, we, we need to have our say. We need locals to have input. I do not expect this to be a one-off for David Perdue either in terms of Rivian. I think he'll continue to bring it up um, in part because there is a huge trove of Republican voters. If you kind of draw a circle around the Rivian plant, maybe 20 miles, the people who would be impacted by this plant, there's oh, I don't know, probably 100,000 Republican primary voters. A, a significant number of, of Republican primary voters are in that, that sort of 40-mile um, circle around that plant. And, it, you know, it, it 
used to be Kemp territory. I mean, this is not far from where Brian Kemp lives. Um, so these are counties like Walton County that he was expected to do very well and it might still do very well. And, but again, there's some opposition. Will it matter to voters in Atlanta? But does it matter to voters there? Yeah. And we, and we've heard from a lot of them, many of them pointed out, and this was something I noticed there too, not just the anti-Rivian signs, but there was a severe lack of pro-Rivian voices. Now we've seen letters We've, we've heard from the Joint Development Authority. We've heard from some local officials, but there hasn't been yet a very prominent local voice um, who is kind of taking the lead and, and going up in front of the cameras to say why this Rivian deal should go forward. Um, there's a lot of bridges to be built right now. And the local residents, as you mentioned, they have concerns that go beyond just the fact that there'll be a lot more people in sprawl. They're worried about being left out of of, of talks about the impact of this deal, about pollution problems, about water, about changing the way of life there. And you talked, you touched on this earlier, but I talked to multiple people who said, I used to live in Roswell. I used to live in, in, in Dunwoody. I used to live in, 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 you know, in town Atlanta. And I wanted to be in an area, not just where more room to grow, but also where more conservatives were. And this is a County where, you know, Republicans carried it with 60% 60% of the vote, 70% of the vote, overwhelmingly conservative counties. And one 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 anti-Rivian advocate um, who I spoke to just said, this is where freedom lives. So a very deep strain of conservatism in this county, in this area. We are free to reject a gigantic auto plant if we feel like it. So, and that, is, that seems to be the message. Well, it's so interesting when you talk about changing the culture of an area with a plant like this. When you think about that huge factory that's going in in Commerce, Georgia, I stopped off at Commerce. Um, I was on my way to, I don't know, some political event somewhere. And I stopped off in Commerce for a cup of coffee. And um, it was almost entirely Korean people, Korean nationals in the Starbucks grabbing a cup of coffee coffee because that is um, an SK plant, which is a Korean company. Um, and they are uh, there. Obviously, they've moved there. They're doing business there. And um, it does change things when you have new investments. Uh, some people would say it changes for the better. Uh, but again, because that area is within a pretty easy drive of Atlanta, but is far enough away from Atlanta that it doesn't feel like Atlanta, that is why a number of people have moved out there. And I've talked to people out there who said, look, I don't want to have to pick up and move again. Like, I don't want to start getting chased away from where I live by traffic, congestion, pollution, uh, strip malls, all kinds of development that they were trying to escape. And they're very worried that having that plant there will bring all those things out to places like Rutledge and Social Circle and Madison. And um, there's a chance that it will, but that's also a trade-off that Governor Kemp has decided is a trade-off that's worth making. Exactly. And and something that he can, a feather in his cap. I mean, we wrote even before the deal was, was finalized, how this would become a major issue for him on the campaign trail. And around the state, he's talk, he talks about his conservative policies, pro-business policies under under his watch and former Governor Nathan Deal's watch that have helped drive deals like this. So we've heard a lot. We've heard a lot of Georgia's the number one state in the, in the nation to do business. Um, it's Site Selection Magazine, which is a very niche publication, has declared Georgia that year after year after year. And it's become this Republican rallying cry, which again, makes it all the more interesting to see a somewhat mainstream Republican politician, although David Perdue is, is also moving far to the party's right flank, to see David Perdue 
take up this this banner. It just um, and I asked about it, and he had he he, he you know that we heard some of the recording, um, but it it smacks to the governor Kemp and his allies as just complete hypocrisy. Um, as Chris Riley told me, and Chris Riley was Nathan Deal's top aide and helped negotiate dozens of these incentives. And they're not, it's, it, this is going to be the largest, we don't know the details yet, but this is going to be the largest incentive package in state history. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Just on the statute alone calls for hundreds of millions of dollars for each job created. And this is 7,500 jobs. Beyond that, we already know $125 million will be spent on infrastructure and land and things like that. So this is going to be huge. It will not be a cheap project. Um, but you know, folks like Chris Riley say, David Perdue worked in this world. He knows this world. This should be no shock to him. And he's been involved in deals like this, either through his own companies or through his involvement in the Georgia Ports Authority. So they're saying that you know he's doing this for political purposes. Yeah. there. Are, it also feels like there are parts of Georgia that would just trip over themselves to get a factory like this. There are parts of rural Georgia that are really struggling, you know, practically dying on the vine. Um, I'm surprised that the governor's office didn't do a little bit more legwork with Rivian to get local buy-in. Um, but with uh, with projects like this, occasionally uh, the, the calculation is made, listen, there will be some local opposition. Uh, that's the way it is, you know, and I think that is pretty typical. Um, it, I will be fascinated to see if there is enough local opposition that could change anything. Does anybody have any actual legal levers to stop this thing? And uh, whoever has the legal levers, are they going to be willing to go up against Governor Kemp? Um, because like you said, this is just, this kind of feels like the gold medal of his um, Olympics as a governor. So to not get this nailed down would be unthinkable to me, um, which is why it feels a little bit like kind of just a political um, kind of a political message in a way for Purdue to say, well, I wouldn't do that if I was governor. Um, it does create the type of governor I didn't expect that David Purdue would be if he really were to be elected governor. It's sort of not what I envisioned as a governor, David Purdue. Um, but he is uh, he has to create wedges. He has to portray contrasts with Governor Kemp. And because they were almost identical on most issues coming into this election, it's these new issues and these new sort of hyper-local issues where we see him really digging in and saying, well, I, w I wouldn't have done that or I wouldn't plan on doing that. Um, it's not We're not seeing gigantic major theoretical issues other than the conduct of the 2020 election. Um, so you've got Buckhead City, you've got Rutledge, and we'll see what else comes up. And one more, you also have income tax. David Perdue says he would Eliminate the entire income, state income tax, which is something like $14 billion. Um, so a pretty huge chunk of the budget. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams, um, I asked her camp for comment on all this, and they basically are sitting back and munching on some popcorn and <laughs> just watching <laughs> yeah. this like, like with good. every – We're good. We're good. <laughs> and we here at the AJC are good for a break right now. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We are back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Don't forget, as a bonus to Atlanta Journal-Constitution subscribers, and we thank every each and every one of you, you can sign up for the Morning Jolt, our daily political newsletter that sets the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. If you're not subscribing to the AJC, please go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you know what's really going on and you can help Patricia J and I press on. Okay, now to fall out from the State of the Union, which is dominated, of course, by the war in Europe. But I want you to know we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. That was the bipartisan part of his speech, but the more polarizing part of his speech was his words about fighting inflation and what he wants to do by lowering drug prices, including a cause championed by Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock. Insulin costs about $10 a vial to make. That's what it costs the, the pharmaceutical company. But drug companies charge families like Joshua and his dad up to 30 times that amount. I spoke with Joshua's mom. Imagine what it's like to look at your child who needs insulin to stay healthy and have no idea how in God's name you're going to be able to pay for it. What it does to your family, but what it does to your dignity, your ability to look your child in the eye. Now, Patricia, Senator Warnock actually was not at the State of the Union because he was in Georgia traveling the state, stumping for his reelection and talking about his, his political policy priorities, including this insulin measure that he is co-sponsoring with Democratic Congresswoman Lucy McMath over in right now, at least the sixth district of Georgia up in the uh, North Atlanta suburbs. And you wrote this terrific column a few days ago that touched on this insulin bill and really delved into Raphael Warnock's strategy right now and his almost sort of his populist streak. Yeah, I think Democrats are really struggling with how to deal with inflation. It is just such a huge factor in what seems like almost every corner of the economy right now that prices are going up. Georgians, I mean, everybody in America can just kind of feel it at almost every point in their day. You're buying groceries, you're pumping gas, um, you're paying your bills, everything kind of feels more expensive. And so um, because inflation itself is just incredibly hard to control, they're looking for ways to start to pick off individual spaces to start to at least speed some kind of help to people. Um, and so this insulin bill, I think, is really interesting because it is, it's a bill that is targeted to um, really a very large section of the population. It deals with people with diabetes. That includes kids, adults. Um, it is a drug that has not changed in its formulation in more than 100 years, but its price has tripled in the last 10 years. And so it has just become incredibly expensive and difficult for a lot of people to afford. As a result, about 25% of people who need to be taking insulin to control their blood sugar levels are not. And then you start to see this cascade of effects, this, this spiral decline in people health. And so it is, I think, a pretty smart way to target 
a healthcare cost that's discreet, that people can really focus on and understand, okay, this is for me, or this is for somebody I know, somebody I love, without kind of busting the entire bank. So it's something that Warnock has come in. His proposal would cap the out-of-pocket costs for patients to about $35 a month. The insurance companies would eat the rest of that. It would not be a huge government outlay to pay for the difference. They're going to say, actually, insurance companies, this is going to be your job to cover this difference. Um, I talked to Warnock about it, and he said, look, I think prescription drug companies are making handsome profits. They can afford it. People can't. You know, that's sort of he's making a choice between those two groups. Uh, There's no way, really, the Democrats can really get inflation under control in the next nine months before the election. But there is a way for them to at least message and possibly even pass a bill or two to control the costs that feel most acute for the people who need the help the soonest. And this is one of those ways. Yeah. And this is another one of his kind of politically non-controversial measures that he's pushing, right? Um, Republicans will point to other elements of his voting record and his platform to attack him in November, but you will not see many Republicans target him over this insulin measure or over his call for a federal gas tax holiday or for his push to uh, hold giant shippers accountable for what he thinks could be price gouging. You know, issues like that, that really show... um, I I mentioned it before, but probably kind of a populist streak. Yeah, and it's something that um, is uh, to your point, though. It's it populism is sort of popular in both parties right now. Donald Trump really, uh, I think, won the White House based on his popular appeal. Um, There is this piece of the electorate that is, I think, kind of tired of parties and looking for solutions, and this is one of those. we were told when Raphael Warnock was running for Senate that he would be, uh, we all know, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Um, instead, he seems to be coming in with these um, more targeted practical measures as a way to start to answer people's problems. Um, he told me that he, uh, particularly in the insulin piece, he said, I see this every day with his parishioners. He sees people. He said he's been at people's bedsides when they were told they were going to need to have a leg amputated because their diabetes had gotten so out of control. Um, In the black community, there's a much higher rate of diabetes than um, in the general population. So it's something that I think really is consistent with who he is, um, who he was before a senator, uh, who he was before he was a senator, but then also um, just the sheer number of Georgians, 10% of Georgians really struggling with this right now. And so it's it's just kind of a targeted practical measure. Um, I wrote in my column that if he really were a radical liberal Raphael Warnock, he would just take over the drug companies with the government and just uh, take all the (laughs) insulin and give it away for free. And so that is really not the type of, uh, that's not the response that we've gotten. That's not his proposal. So uh, my column is really that he is not the radical liberal Marxist communist sympathizer. Um, he is instead coming in with these targeted, uh, practical kind of populist ideas instead. That would definitely be the communist way. And this is a perfect segue to our next topic that Marjorie Taylor Greene accuses yeah. Democrats of embracing. Uh, we, we don't like to often talk about all the antics and attention-grabbing moves that Marjorie Taylor Greene pulls off every day because we would just be talking about her every podcast. But we were talking about this one because it 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 drew a new line in the sand. First, um, let's talk about how she tried to disrupt the State of the Union. Folks, if we're to advance liberty and justice, we need to secure our border and fix the immigration system. 
And as you might guess, I think we can do both. You can kind of faintly hear in the background, but her and another far-right Republican uh, tried to have the Joe Wilson moment, if you will, by chanting build, build the wall, but they were quickly shouted down um, by folks who just said, sit down, you know, let's listen to the president speak. Uh, but that was just a few days. I imagine that was a chance, a, an attempt to distract from an event she appeared at last week when she attended and gave a speech at a white nationalist rally that also turned into a pro-Russia rally. And now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin is Hitler. And they say that's not a good thing. And can we give a round of applause for Russia? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what it's like to be canceled. And that's why I'm here to talk to you tonight. I don't believe anyone should be canceled. I don't believe in I don't believe in separating people and identities. I don't believe in separating people and classes, but that's what the Democrats believe in because that's what Marxism is. That's what communism is. Patricia, that first voice we heard was Nick Fuentes, uh, the organizer of this white nationalist rally. And that was immediately before he introduced Marjorie Taylor Greene. So she came on the stage right after literally a a chant, a pro-Putin chant and an applause for Russia days after Russia invaded the Ukraine for no reason. You know, no, Ukraine did not provoke Russia in any way whatsoever, as, as you know, we all know and we've all read. Um, but there is an element of the far right that is trying to apologize for Putin and even supporting him. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, by taking part in that conference, has drawn a line among some Republicans. Um, we, we've heard a number of Republicans that have been very reluctant to criticize her come out and say just how awful it is to, uh, for her to, to, to essentially endorse that sort of rally by speaking at it as their headline speaker, as their surprise guest. We've also heard from many of her critics who amped up their criticism, like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Um, like U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, who said, essentially, I'm in a room full of morons um, when it comes to uh, some of his Republican colleagues. And then I think the most notable um, of, of decision of this week was Herschel Walker, who was supposed to attend her rally this weekend, her pro-gun rally in Rome, Georgia this weekend. Um, he withdraws. He does not say why he is pulling out, on the record at least. But let me tell you, behind the scenes, it is very much clear that he is trying to distance himself from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he has an eye on November and a general election matchup with Raphael Warnock, and is trying to disassociate himself from Marjorie Taylor Greene at this moment. Yeah. The Republican criticism of Marjorie Taylor Greene reminds me a lot of the Republican criticism of Donald Trump. It seems to be mostly focused on um, not being associated with her, but being happy to join her when it's good for them. Um, right now, Marjorie Taylor Greene has raised the third most money of any House member in the country. Um, she has a huge following. She has a gigantic checkbook, a huge war chest, and she commands just an enormous amount of attention and among the far right affection. And she also has a way of sort of insisting that she's being canceled 
at the very same moment that she is getting so much media coverage, it's hard to not see her when you turn on the TV or read the newspaper. Um, when she said that uh, she didn't know who Nick Fuentes was uh, moments before he introduced her, literally the sentence before he introduced her, he was talking about um, the secret sauce of their movement, which are young white men. And uh, she said in response to the criticism, she said, look, these are, I'm not going to reject speaking to this young, boisterous crowd who is, uh, their energy is just really critical to our movement. Um and I don't know what movement she is talking about, um, but the Republicans are are distancing themselves for now. And they've done that many times before. They distanced themselves when she uh, compared mask wearing to uh, the Holocaust. And she con- but she's continued to compare herself and other conservatives. Uh, and I don't even like to use the word conservatives, other, um, other far right figures mm-hmm. to compare them to victims, to compare them to people living in Nazi Germany, uh, pre-Holocaust Germany. And, uh, uh, but the Republicans have not said, if, if we win the majority, she won't get a committee assignment. They have not tried to excommunicate her from their conference. They've just said, you know, this is unacceptable and I'm going to talk to her. And that has been, been a, uh, Leader McCarthy's response to it. Um, other than that, I do think that Mitt Romney genuinely is offended by those comments. I think the people who have spoken out, like Jeff Duncan, is, are offended by those comments. But that's the minority of this Republican Party. And the rest of the Republican Party is happy to either remain quiet um, or to accept her um, when she, you know, kind of when the when the dust settles. Uh, I will be interested to see if Herschel Walker never does an event with Marjorie Taylor Greene again. I kind of feel like he might. Mm-hmm. We we polled a lot of Republican leaders around Georgia, at least um, in the aftermath of her appearance, and we heard a lot of the same comments. Not directly calling her out, but just saying Republican Party is not the party of anti-Semitism or racism or xenophobia or whatever. Uh, but no, no direct condemnation of Marjorie Taylor Greene, which you know underscores the fact that Republicans are very very nervous about getting on her bad side because she can start not tweeting anymore because she's, she's lost her, her Twitter account, at least one of her Twitter handles, but she can attack them on the campaign trail and rally, you know, Republicans against, or her supporters against what she calls rhinos and do that whole deal and just give them headaches uh, in general. So they're tiptoeing around her. Um, we might hear a different tune after, after November, but right now, so close to the primaries, we're, we are, we are not hearing many objections. Democrats, meanwhile, are not going to let them distance themselves. They are going to be sending out flyers and mailers and digital ads and everything, you name it, um, tying every top-tier Republican to Marjorie Taylor Greene because her numbers among Georgia Democrats and moderates too are abysmal. Well, that is about all the time we want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene in this show. (laughs) Patricia, now let's get to our favorite segment of the show because you did a call out on our last show for for readers with great questions. I don't know how many great questions we got, but we got some amazing questions. Let's hear from at least one of them. Okay. Uh, this is from William Watts in Pooler, Georgia, um, which is right down there outside of Savannah. It says, Greg and Patricia, if you were not political journalists, what do you think you'd be doing for a living instead? So me, you know, this sounds weird. I would be probably an economic developer. I just love, I, I covered that beat for the AJC. I love I love projects and, and developments and seeing how can communities can be transformed for the better, hopefully not the worse, by certain developments. And I would probably go back to – I'd go to grad school and um, 
get like a public policy degree or something like that and and then go be an economic developer. And and I, I'm known for like, especially in my community where I live in Dunwoody, I'm a super Dunwoody booster. So um, I would, uh, I'd be okay at that thing. And also it'd be fun to be a teacher. It'd be fun to be like a journalism professor or something. I'd have to go get a master's first, but it'd be fun to go. I always like going to speak to classes, which I'm doing later today. Um, I love that. Um, Speaking of economic development, I really would like to start a chain of nonprofit grocery stores. I just don't understand why people have to pay a for-profit enterprise for food when in so many of my travels going around the state, the lack of a good grocery store is the biggest crisis facing a lot of towns um, around the state. So um, in in all actuality, I really would – I actually do have maybe some thoughts about that someday, how to start a nonprofit chain of grocery stores to uh, end food deserts and, um, you know, make people just uh, be add an extra element to the community that's lacking in a lot around the state. I love that idea. Patricia, you have so much extra time anyway with, with our jobs. <laughs> you can just do it on the side. It's true. Um, Jay will be your hype man, and um, I'll help uh, help try to raise some money for it. <laughs> go, Patricia. Thank go. you, thank you. Well, I'm gonna I'll send you my fundraising emails once this gig is over, way down the road. <laughs> <laughs> so now our final segment of the show: Who's up? Who's down? Patricia, you want to take that one first as well? Oh yes. Uh, so for who's up, I'm going to say who's up is House Speaker David Ralston because he has taken the first step to pass a Mental Health Care Parity Act down at the state capitol. That is his biggest priority um, really for the last several years. It is an acute critical need here in the state of Georgia. And it really does look like this year there is an, an excellent chance of passage and of resources going to really start to fill the gaps in the state that so many people are dealing with. You know, I'd have to say who's up, Governor Kemp. He um, there's another round of polls that show him in a in a solid position against David Perdue. I will never count David Perdue out because he's still within striking distance. But the one thing that well, one of the things that Brian Kemp has going for him is bill signing is right around the corner. We're at kind of the midpoint of the world. We're past the midpoint of the session. We are nearing crossover day. Qualifying is starting this week, so now it's kind of. We're getting into the uh, the real meat of the campaign, and the governor's going to be able to go around the state for 40 days, signing a bunch of bills, making a bunch of hype, and getting a lot of attention for bills that, like the budget that Democrats also love, you know, teacher pay raises and public employee raises and lots of money, thanks in part to federal pandemic-related legislation that Republicans opposed, but also some serious conservative policies like gun expansions and things like that that Democrats hate, but Republican primary voters will love. So he'll have that on his side. Patricia, who's down? I mean, there is only one candidate for who's down this week, and it is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I do not like to write about her a lot. I don't like to focus a whole lot on her. Um, But uh, if you go to a white supremacist rally, you're who's down. Amen. I will not use her because you just did, but I'd say Rivian. You know, I w- again, I was struck by the, the the depth of local pushback to Rivian and the fact that, you know, for all the anti-Rivian signs and, and movements, there just hasn't been, other than the governor and, and some of his allies, there hasn't been a real local voice that has come to the fore. And so Rivian has some work to do. Again, it's going to happen. It, it's, it would be shocking to see this deal unravel and a huge blow to Governor Kemp if it, if it does. So I don't think it's going to come close to unraveling. But the very fact that 
that were talking about Rivian and that were you know, questioning whether the biggest economic development deal in Georgia history is a good thing for the community says a lot. Well, that's our show. Have a great weekend, and we will see you Wednesday on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, oh, oh.